Welcome and happy Friday. It's November 25th, 2016. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. And I'm here in the Condé Nast podcast studio with Laura Redman and Sebastian Modak from the CNT Digital Web Editorial Team. And Jason Kay, who's an associate editor for Wired, he's joining us via Skype. So if there's any sonic weirdness, that's probably the reason, or at least among the reasons that it could be happening. The topic of the week this week is the future of travel. This is a very exciting event for us. I've been working on this for like two years. <laughs> it's a joint venture between Wired and Traveler. We both kind of come at this idea of travel from different directions, so we felt like it was a nice little mashup that we could do. And so it rolled out in the December issues of both magazines. So look for it there. You can also find everything on both of the websites. So visit wire.com, visit cntraveler.com and look for future of travel. And all of this stuff is there. It's very exciting. And I guess maybe a good place to start are some of the things that everybody has been talking about, like, for example, hyperloops and straddling buses, things like that. What are the, the vehicular representations of the future of travel that you guys wrote about? Well, this is some of the crazier stuff that we wrote about. In, to a degree, it's happening now, like the uh, self-driving cars, the Tesla technology, and other technology that companies like Uber are using. But there's also things like the Hyperloop. That's Elon Musk's idea. And it's now currently kind of being developed by several different companies, all in a race to build the Hyperloop. But what it ultimately will be is a pneumatic tube that will take you from San Francisco to LA and vice versa in something like 35 minutes. Now, you're out on the West Coast, Jason. I mean, how much talk is there about something like the Hyperloop? Do people believe it's actually going to happen, or is it just kind of a pipe dream? It's such a good question. Um, I mean, it's something we talk about probably every day at the office, but at the same time, it feels so distant and, and pipe dreamy. But we're all very excited about it. So I, I personally struggle to know what to think about these kind of futuristic modes of transportation because they all do seem so far off. And, and transportation, you know, aviation specifically moves very slowly. And so it, it was tough for us to kind of get our heads around the future of transportation for this package. But um, yeah, the Hyperloop is probably the most exciting, though fanciful. Is future. there some thought? That, is it the kind of thing that couldn't scale past a San Francisco, L.A.? sort of distance? Could there be one from New York to LA, for example? I think so. I mean, again, it's so hard to know exactly how realistic the Hyperloop is, but I see no reason why it can't go LA to New York or San Francisco to New York or even one day cross oceans. So I don't know. It seems for me, at least, I feel like one of the interesting things with these more kind of pipe dreamy transportation inventions or ideas, concepts, is what you can take away from it about what people want from travel in the future. And it seems like a lot of the undercurrent to, all, to a lot of the inventions is like people just want to get places faster and right. with less effort, you know, whether it's a self-driving car, whether it's the Hyperloop, whether it's bringing back supersonic travel and making it even faster than the Concorde. So I think that's an interesting way to look at it is that the demand is just get us there faster because I don't want to sit on a plane for 16 hours to get to the other side of the world. Would you guys feel comfortable going in a Hyperloop based on what you know about it? I think I would. I think it feels a little bit like a theme park ride and not, you know, there's no loop to loop so I can handle it because I'm in my 30s and that's about all I can handle. Um, would you feel comfortable being the first person to go no, on the Hyperloop? No, Are you kidding? I want Elon on that and I want his team that's very, very well paid to try it out and tell me it's okay. <laughs> 
But like, it's not an insignificant question, right? Because right. in some of the rocket testing, people have died, right? right? For both, both for Virgin and for um, and for uh, SpaceX, SpaceX, yeah. Within the Muskiverse, Hyperloop sort of feels like a punt. It's not really that big. This is a guy who's basically talking about going to Mars and right. setting up colonies, right? So the Hyperloop feels like Sunday afternoon you know does the fact that he's attached to something like this i don't think he's involved in the actual development he's is not. He? yeah he's kind of tangentially i mean he's the mastermind is that right jason yeah that's that's absolutely right what did he drop jason what did he throw out there into the world was there like a plan or something or was it just this concept i think it's i mean with elon musk it's always concepts and you never really know how much science or, or reality is behind them but i think you need someone like him to come up with the idea and then give it to the scientists and the researchers to see if it's feasible and i mean He's not the only one doing stuff like that. I right. mean, there's Richard Branson, who's famous for, you know, just throwing these crazy ideas out there, like 15 at a time and seeing what sticks. But in the past week, there's been some news which shows at least some sort of real concrete commitment to some of these more wacky ideas. Last week, they unveiled this kind of miniature prototype called the Baby Boom of this collaboration between Virgin and Boom, which is a startup that's trying to bring back supersonic travel mm. to a commercial audience. Eventually, the idea is for a 40-seat passenger jet that can you know, get you from New York to London in three and a half hours. It's still a ways away. They're saying 2020 they'll have the full prototype testing, but for now they have this little two-seater that they're going to start testing at the end of next year. And it's interesting to see that happening now. Like all these ideas that you read about and that we write about, Whenever, at least whenever I see one, I'm like, can I write about that? Because it's just it's so exciting to think about these possibilities and now you're actually seeing at least some real concrete action being taken even if it's very early stage well it's also a little retro too though i mean we had a concord right, right? that went out and now we're looking at something that looks like the next blimp the next zeppelin you right. know that what's it called the airlander yeah i mean i don't know that i would board a zeppelin to travel i just rewatched indiana jones and <laughs> the last crusade and, you know, he tosses someone out of a blimp in that, and that's Nazi Germany, 1930s and 40s. I don't know that I need to go back to that era You're also for travel. from New Jersey. Didn't the Hindenburg crash in New Jersey? Well, maybe. Not hey. not in my house, but... No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I do find it funny that a lot of the ideas we have are not necessarily original. They're just different iterations of what we've been talking about for decades. But the Airlander is real, it's an actual thing. Yes. Whereas some of these things are not quite. I mean, real. it's it's second test flight crashed, crash. so <laughs> it's real, but it's not it's uh, it's not going to be taken to the skies in a big way anytime soon. The other thing that's interesting to me about these bigger, sort of moonshotty projects or whatever is that it is the way that Musk and Branson and other private companies, Bezos, are kind of leading the charge on these things rather than like NASA, yeah, right? And or, or NASA's pairing with Lockheed to develop technology. I mean, NASA is branching out as well a little bit, but it has to compete now with Branson and Bezos and Musk and these billion dollar companies, you know, that probably have a lot more than NASA has to work with right now. So I, I am very curious where the tech race will go, probably even in the next decade. And it almost becomes like a political question too is a space race between private companies better than one between government agencies and you know who's catering to the needs of people more and you know you could really you could really dig deep if you wanted to we could we only have like 45 <laughs> minutes <to> have <laughs> but also some of the technology we got most excited about especially for this package was the stuff that's happening on airplanes right now for consumers 
you know, we're looking at the Dreamliner, we're looking at the Airbus A350, and the changes they're making to improve jet lag, to improve just the overall experience in terms of pressurization, lighting, it's making it less of a bear to be an economy on a long haul flight. Yeah, and it's a little bit of an exception to the rule I just proposed about everything's about getting there faster, because I mean, these aren't significantly faster, it's just a more comfortable flight, right? It's like less compressed air, it's, you know, bigger windows, it's more nuanced lighting to minimize the effects of jet lag. It's just making a long-haul flight a little more comfortable. Jason, do you know how any of these things work? How does the lighting, what do they do with the lighting that helps eliminate jet lag? There's some material in the windows that dims electric currents, I think, are sent through it, and it, it dims or lightens based on time of day. But I haven't personally experienced this, though a couple of fellow editors have, and they said both for them and for their kids when they arrived in their destinations 10 hours away that everyone felt alert and, and ready to go. So I'm curious if any of you have experienced these self-dimming windows and if it helped with jet lag. I haven't, but it just seems like it took, what, 40 years for airline, the airplane industry to figure this out? Like, like be like, <laughs> lighting, lighting changes everything, you Rather know? Rather like, pulling down a shade. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I took a uh, A350 to, because Air France is flying a lot of them between New York and Paris, and I took an A350 to Paris, and I have to say I did not... I didn't have any jet lag. Hmm. It could have been what I was involved with and I didn't notice and I had it. But really, when I go to Italy, for example, I notice it. And I didn't have any issues when I went to Paris on that plane. So I don't know if it was the lighting. It's one of those things where when you're on the plane, if you're not looking for this stuff, you're just sort of a passenger, you're not going to notice it, which is what's great about it, right? Like one of the other things that they've done is they're humidifying the air. They're right. just putting more more moisture in the air so you get less dehydrated. That's the thing I've noticed. I took the Dreamliner very recently and I normally get very, I'm kind of lean. I don't know. I get really dehydrated on all my flights and I wasn't nearly as bad on this flight. So I think pressurization and humidity, the air quality in the plane, I think is the most noticeable change. Lighting could be like, you know, on Virgin America, it's like mood lighting, right? It's purple. Yeah. Does that help or hurt? I don't know. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm excited to try it out. And I guess until then, I'll just be tired and thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of invisible stuff here that's kind of boring to the consumer, but it's, you know, they're, they're made of lighter weight materials. The engines are more fuel efficient. So the profundity of the change is the elimination of jet lag and the changing of the dynamic once you get to your destination. But it's also that it's opened up longer routes, it's encouraged people to take longer flights, and it's also allowed the airlines to take stops out of long routes because the flights are more comfortable and more efficient, more fuel efficient. And that's, in turn, opened up new markets to people all over the world and, and sort of allowed some of them to thrive, which I think is the more profound and less visible change, but a really important one. If you think about the way South Africa has exploded, the way tourism to Australia has exploded, Singapore Airlines has really made a huge difference in, the, in travel to Asia. So I feel like those things are less sexy to talk about, but it's actually a more profound change in the travel dynamic. I mean, it, yeah, it's huge in terms of routes. I mean, we have, I mean, in Paul Brady's piece, he's talking about, it's on our website, he's quoting someone from Airbus who is talking about new routes opening up like Oakland to Santiago, Chile, or Johannesburg to Sydney. Like these things didn't happen before because it just wasn't feasible with the technology available. And now suddenly like Johannesburg to Sydney, that's a hell of a flight. Yeah. And you can do that now. Yeah. Right. And I know the um the Singapore Airlines, I think it's the Newark to Singapore flight. Well it was it used to be the Newark to Singapore. And it might be the 
New York area to Singapore flight is coming back, which was right. the world's longest flight at a certain point. And they've been flying a lot of Airbuses, although they've pulled back their fleet a little bit recently. But that's a 19-hour flight. And imagine a 19-hour flight that's actually yeah. comfortable. Okay, so airplanes go through airports and passengers <laughs> go through airports. Nice segue. <laughs> yeah, see how we do that? And airports are changing in profound ways, too. Like the Frankenport that you guys put together... Jason, maybe you could walk us through what are the ingredients of the Frankenport, like the ideal airport? Well, this was so much fun. Four or five of us just kind of sat down one afternoon and started talking about our favorite features from terminals at airports around the world. And and a fellow editor, Sarah, had recently been to Gatwick and couldn't stop talking about the security line, which which refreshed the boxes and it was it kept everyone moving and there were five stations, um, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, she thought that sort of revolutionized the idea of security. And so from that one enhancement, we started thinking about how would you build an airport with every great feature from around the world. So uh, we had a bunch of people researching this and it includes everything from robots who tell you where your gate is in, in Japan to free Wi-Fi at Tiny Clinton National, which seems so obvious, but obviously most airports have terrible Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. to universal check-in so you can drop your bags at any boarding counter. Um, there's this train in Hong Kong where you can drop your bags actually the morning of your flight and they'll end up on the plane later that evening or even the next morning. I don't know, tons of stuff from airports around the world that we just really loved and we imagined cramming them all into one Frankenport and, and seeing what that would be like. Some of this stuff is so simple, right? Again, get me through these painful processes faster, like the use of CT scans on luggage so that you can just push things through not only more rapidly, but you can leave all the stuff in there instead of having to take out the liquids and that kind of thing. The use of beacons at Miami International, right? Like, to me, it seems like it's Google Maps brought inside the airport, right? Like, you can sort of see what's going on. It enables all kinds of communication so that you can sort of roam about the airport feel a little bit relaxed, less uptight before the flight, and still know that you're going to get alerted when the flight is boarding and all those kinds of things. Things like just basic architecture, like the airport in Beijing that has a radial design, kind of like, you know, just a wheel with different spokes. Like, that just seems so obvious. Like, why doesn't every airport have that? Because how many airports have you been through, like, on a layover? And it's like, oh, I have 45 minutes, no problem. Then you get off the plane and realize you have, like, a two-mile trek to the other side of the airport to get on your connecting flight. Yeah. Yeah. What's amazing about that radial design is that the furthest point from the center is only 650 yards away, which we just loved. And you can make any flight. That's Uh, amazing. Yeah. Meanwhile, at JFK, I think it's about a mile and a half from check in (laughs) to your gate at Terminal 5. And impossible to figure out which mile and a half you need to go down. Right. Right. Like, it's just ridiculous. But there are even smaller scale things that I'm excited about. Like, at some point, I want to be able to just go through the entire process with my smartphone, which now has biometric identification on it. So you know it's me, and there's no sort of question about, you know, verifying my identity. And so, you know, the Queen Beatrix in Aruba that has the, the facial recognition cameras, I mean, like, this this seems to me like a small but meaningful advance in terms of speed and in terms of efficiency. And as a traveler, you know, you don't have to pull so many different things out of your pocket. The more things that can just rely on technology that we already carrying around seems like a really great thing. So that facial recognition tech, how does it actually work? I don't know. And I will say this is something else that we could talk about with all this stuff. I think this is another good point about self-driving cars too, like and the idea of these things being kind of distant where, you know, Microsoft 
has this new facial recognition technology that lets you unlock your computer, which is probably not radically dissimilar from what they're using, right? Like it just takes a picture and it's it's trying to scan and measure against you. But you get all kinds of things like the angle that you're at, you know, they have to compensate for that. If you're wearing glasses, you know, we talked about the passports a couple of weeks ago where there's a new rule that you can't wear glasses in your passport photo because again, as we move into these automated processes, the computer isn't yet at the point of sophistication where it can tell the difference or, or it can identify you as the same person if you're wearing glasses and not wearing glasses. So I think like I've practically turned off the facial recognition startup on on the Windows computer because it just fails like mm-hmm. 35% of the time. But in this test case, is it basically just checking you at security or at the passport check and then you you don't have to pull out papers anymore? No, totally. Passport, yeah, it's just a major checkpoint. So you don't have to constantly be digging through your, your bags for identification every time. That's pretty great. I mean, it's kind of along the lines of the known traveler ID that you get if you join Global Entry, just the idea that we are becoming more obvious travelers around the world, that we're in the system and they don't have to like grill us to the ninth degree every time we try to board a plane. I don't know what you guys' experience have been, but over the last year and a half, as the boarding pass has come onto the phone and onto the watch and all that stuff, I feel like we've reached almost an equilibrium with that where a year ago I felt like it was a very fumbling experience and like people are kind of dropping it and it's not working a lot of the time. And the last time I flew down to Charleston this past week, it was like people were going through pretty quickly and like the system has kind of organized itself around that and it seemed like it it was working. It was kind of great. Yeah, it's worked for me. I feel like TSA is a little bit more aware now. They, uh, They know what they're doing. We know what we're doing. It works for me every time on my phone. It has yet to work for me on my watch. Yeah like without fail it's just that i'm just like that idiot with my wrist up against some scanner like please please let me on the plane so they're still ironing out some some kinks but i think people yeah people are used to it people finally know what to do they know to put their phone on the scanner the right way and you're not slowed down by people fumbling like like you guys were saying Um, and i'm ironically a bit of a late adopter of most technology and apps because i'm suspicious of most of it but this has been pretty fantastic, even for me. And um, I would never call an airport a pleasant experience, but it's getting closer to that every day. Totally. Yeah. Which is kind of a ridiculous thing to think just of. Just like saying a long haul <laughs> flight could be a pleasant experience. Yeah, it's, just, it, it's, it's a little bit crazy. Okay. So the other thing that is starting to change and that we covered a lot in this is the, the idea of lodging. And I think Andrew did a really nice piece for, Andrew Sessa did a really nice piece for us that was about the evolution of the Grand Hotel, the idea of the hotel, which has undergone some radical transformation recently. But Laura, what is the Grand Hotel? Like, what is the origin of this concept? The Grand Hotel sprung up in about the early 1800s uh, and carried on through the middle of the century, but it was basically catering to a newly minted leisure class that appeared after the Industrial Revolution really, really was gearing up. So some of the earliest spots were in London and Venice. They were kind of precursors to places like Claridge's, which is a famous hotel in London. But they were, you know, they still are. The ones that exist, like Venice's uh, Daniele, are gorgeous, gilded, you know, the kind of thing you you imagine in Grand Budapest Hotel, right? right. Um, there was a famous Broadway play called Grand Hotel that is just, you know, you feel like you're walking into a song and dance when you go to these places. They're just absolutely gorgeous. And the article talked about how this has changed in over 200 years. And you think about it, you've gone from these palaces converted into hotels to a luxury micro suite or a pod hotel. 
And initially, the pod hotel was marketed heavily in Japan. It was a Japanese conceit. It was basically something where business travelers could duck in, take a nap for an hour, refresh at a hotel or somewhere in the city. But it's becoming, like I said, a luxe thing on, unto itself right now. There's um, a pod hotel in Manhattan that just opened up that has beautiful rooms. And uh, Jason, in your in your issue, you guys broke down the mechanics behind the pod hotel, like how you actually pull off comfort in something like something smaller than a Manhattan studio apartment. Yeah, what are the right. ingredients to a pod hotel? Well, my favorite is the sort of, the designers have to create the illusion of, of space in such a tiny such a tiny room. So everything is open. There's no, instead of a closet, for instance, the room has an open hanger wall. And even the, uh, the mini fridge is empty, which for some reason to me seems to embiggen the space because you have the possibility to fill it with something. I don't know. And the, the bathroom has sort of glass walls. And I've never stayed in one of these micro hotels, but I've been in small spaces, which and I'm, I'm very claustrophobic, but I feel like I'd be very comfortable in one of these because everything is so perfectly tailored to make it seem larger than it is um, and really comfortable. Right. I mean, these are, at the end of the day, they're really only 150 square feet, but there's a lot of glass, a lot of windows, a lot of light. You know, it, it, like you said, you don't really feel cramped. I think I'd feel more cramped in a large, dark hotel room. And I think part of the idea behind it is that these mostly exist in your New York's or Tokyo's around the world. I mean, you're not going to, the idea is you're not spending your entire day in this place anyway. This is like a place to recharge, to sleep, whatever. Like you're not going to find a pod hotel like in the Swiss Alps or something, right? It's like not a destination in itself. It's more just, it's a practical solution to being in a, in a large fun city. Yeah, it's almost like if you look at the Grand Hotel, which is kind of born around the time that travel, as we understand it, is born too. And the idea is like keep you in the style to which you become accustomed when you're abroad, right? So this this literal idea of recreating homey things, you know, all the comforts of home in a grand fashion while you're abroad. And now we've kind of turned that inside out. And it's like the hotel is a place for you to not be uncomfortable, but the idea is that you're going to get out of it. You know, like you're going to, the point is to be outside the home, to be out in the location that you are, not to be inside and being, you know, overly comfortable and like reclusive within the space. But I think it's also interesting that you see sort of hybrids of this that are stages of the evolution of this where, of, of this of this idea where if you look at something like an ace or a standard, which represent a, a sort of point on this continuum that's not quite to the capsule hotel and has ties to the grand hotel and that it, they do have the sumptuous sort of lobby spaces where there's a lot of activity and you're pulling the outside world in to some degree. But the rooms are small. And again, the idea is that you'll be in the common spaces. You're not going to be in your room reclusive. You're going to be social and you're going to be out in those common spaces in the restaurants or the coffee bars or whatever, it is, the bars themselves or whatever. So I think it's an idea that's kind of infused the entire uh, you know, sort of chain of, of lodging. We didn't go deep on this because we're going deep on it in other places. But the notion of the homestay, which has right. kind of completely disrupted this space and changed everything or at least threatens to change everything, may promises to change everything, depending on your point of view, whether you work for a hotel company or not. <laughs> well, the hotel companies are definitely paying attention, especially since Airbnb launched its Trips platform, which is ostensibly uh, hosts as concierges planning, you know, anything from a two-hour itinerary to a three-day trip for you. But um, what's interesting is how homestays are trying to be more like hotels now, and hotels are trying to be more like homestays. Right. So the homestay, what it doesn't have that hotels have is that over the top service aspect. Right. Which is where trips comes in now or um, 
One Fine Stay is another luxury overnight rental company that will send someone to vet every property. And they will also send someone to the door to meet you when you arrive so you feel like you're checking in, so to speak. Mm. Meanwhile, the hotels, like you said, with both the Ace and the kind of like hip boutique feel, um, and also Ian Schrager's properties before that, they are trying to create a more personal experience, a more something that feels distinctive, unique, like you can't get that anywhere else in the world. The chain, the hotel chain, which is still very prominent, and I mean, the Marriott-Starwood merger has made it the largest hotel chain in the world. Um, they have like 37 brands, over yes. a million rooms worldwide. Yeah. yeah, it's insane. Yeah. So even they are trying to develop these lines with personality, the Canopy by Hilton, the Andaz by Hyatt, you know, that are slightly younger, um, but each have their own look. They might hire uh, designers or local artists to deck out the rooms. It's really important that when you go to your hotel, you don't feel like you're at a hotel that could be anywhere in the world. You want to feel like you're of a place. Right. So even even with like home sharing and things like that, in terms of the future of this, hotels aren't going away anytime soon. They're just going to keep on changing, right? Keep on so evolving. Keep, is that what you... Well, I mean, I, and the, the notion of convergence is interesting to me, too, where, because there's a... I can't remember if it's in Amsterdam or Tokyo. There's a hotel, quote-unquote, that basically comprises a collection of Airbnbs. Right. right? Where, in Tokyo. Where, it was in Tokyo. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's... That's one example. I feel like I've talked about it on numerous podcasts. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's Nobody listens to all the podcasts <laughs> except me. It's like a, the concept is like a bed in art. So it's just a collection of apartments in one up-and-coming artsy neighborhood in Tokyo. The rooms are different apartments that have been decorated by different artists. The check-in, you know, the check-in counter is actually just a bar where you go have a drink and you meet the bartender who gives you your keys and explains to you which apartment you're in. And it all started from someone just having a bunch of Airbnbs and being like, you know what, I can take this idea... And instead of just renting out numerous apartments, I can just build a hotel. And that way, like, your hotel is this community rather than just a giant sort of cinder block building. It's defined by a, an abstract concept rather than a building. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe this is obvious, but I think it's important to distinguish between types of travelers in, in terms of accommodation. Like, these micro hotels seem to me the exact opposite of a homestay. You know, if you're, if you're staying in someone's apartment through Airbnb, you want to experience the city like a local. Um, I imagine you spend time in, in that apartment. You can even cook there. But if you're staying in a micro hotel, you're probably a business traveler who's sort of passing through. Um, it's the maximum kind of efficiency style. I struggle to wrap my head around how all of these different trends fit together. But I think it comes down to what you want to get out of a place because obviously where you're staying is such an important emotional, mental component. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So the other place where I think this sort of liminal space between the future and and now gets played out a lot is in the app space. And Jason, you guys did a really nice roundup of some, we, we talk about apps all the time, travel apps, but you guys did a really nice roundup of apps that are available now, but that are doing some cutting edge things, some interesting things in the travel space. Walk us through a couple of those. What were your favorites of those? Gosh, well, I didn't really work on the, the, this app item because, as I said, I'm, I'm suspicious of most apps, especially when it comes to travel. They all seem so transitory. Uh, so I was actually going to ask which apps you guys really rely on because that's more interesting to me for this discussion, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I swear by TripIt. They're not paying me to say that. I've had it for years now. <laughs> and 
it literally, um, there was a point in my life where I was missing flights. I was taking enough flights and I wasn't keeping good track of my schedule where I thought I had a 2 p.m. and it turned out to be a 10 a.m. flight. So TripIt makes me better organized. It gave me a digital assistant, basically. And I think that's how they touted it at one point, but it really does feel like that. I mean, it seems so base level and it might just be because I was a, a late adopter to Apple smart things, but the wallet <laughs> was a huge game changer for me. Just having like all the information I need when I travel in the same place with an easy just press. I mean, before that, it was like going through my bag, finding like a scrap of paper that had the hotel's address on it, like another one that had my you know boarding pass confirmation number on it. And just having that all consolidated and like on my wrist as well as in my pocket is is huge. I'm very proud of Apple for sticking by by wallet because I feel like initially nobody understood it. It didn't make sense to people, but now a ton of people use it. And yeah. I, that's one app that I find, but it's more of a core app. Yeah, it's like it's a consolidation of different things. But I mean, I, I right. think the easy one that remains interesting because it keeps evolving is Google Maps. And I feel like when Google Maps started to allow you to keep things offline and now the piece that you guys did where you sort of walk through the creation of a trip by curating from your own social graph and creating a custom map that you can then take offline and you can also share it. I feel like that's kind of the dream in a way, right? Like I know it's taken a few years to get here. Yeah, I mean, I think offline maps is is huge. There's another one, maps.me, that you can download a city's map in advance or a hiking trail on Kilimanjaro or whatever so that when you're not connected, you can still find your way around, which I would very much rely on because I have a terrible sense of direction. <laughs> Jason, what do you use? The I, I love Google Maps. Um, and I was talking to Ali, our design director, but she's the one who wrote the piece for us. And she was in Mexico City. And she was able to pull up this customized Google Map where all of her friends who had been there recently had populated it with exciting places to go. So she not only did she have a map, but she had recommendations from all her friends. And I remember years ago traveling and there being these huge email threads from people you're trying to curate a list of recommendations and you have people you know writing in from all over the place and it's it's hard to keep track of those but you have it all in one place like on a google map with pins literally dropped at all the places you have to go even with descriptions from the friends of yours who've been there i think like that's really the best way to travel yeah i mean i had a experience like that where when i first moved to botswana the public transportation system is built around these combis which are these minivans that have their own routes, but you have, they're just numbered routes. You have no idea what the routes are, where they go. You just kind of jump on and hope for the best and get off where you think you're in the right place. But a bunch of people who had, like expats who had gone through, had slowly built out this Google map that had every single route mapped oh, out wow. by the number and color coded. So by the time I got there, I just had this map I could pull up and be like, oh yeah, I needed the number seven, which I can hail down over here. And then I jump off over here. Um, and like that's that's huge. That completely just takes away one giant obstacle of traveling in a country. Yeah, genius of platforming and sticking again back to your point, Jason. Like sticking with it, just yeah. like continuing to evolve the product until it finds these new or people find these new uses for it, which is kind of great. So crowdsourcing apps are interesting, though. I I know some people swear by Waze. I've had a little bit of trouble with it, and I think I prefer Google Maps when I'm trying to figure out my favorite route. But I just tried Gate Guru for the first time, and I really love that. It's an app that um, gathers reviews of different eateries, basically around airport terminals, and you can pull up any, almost any airport, almost any terminal, and you know, rather than having to go to Jamba Juice or something, you'll find out that there's a great little Mexican restaurant just down, you know, by Gate B27, and that's solely crowdsourced. So, 
one that I I feel like is a little bit more futuristic that you guys called out that I'm excited about, except that I think it's going to need a different evolution is Wikitude. I feel like if it had a different name or it was owned by Google or Apple, <laughs> it would probably be a different thing. What is it? But it's it's an AR app, and it's basically like take the notion of a Wikipedia. Like eventually, Google's going to do this, or Apple's going to do this, whatever. Um, you know, you just point it at stuff, and you get all kinds of detail about it. And again, it's like imagine going around the world and crossing that with trusted sources, right? right? Rather than just random anonymous sources, which again is where you cross a threshold into people really feeling like they're willing to use it. But that notion of, of not having to carry around a book, again, leveraging the thing that you've already got with you in your pocket all the time where you're taking pictures, you're probably pointing it at the thing anyway to take a picture, right? So you just add in this layer of information and and uh the sort of knowledge graph to it and, that's and there's so many uses right it could be like there could be kind of the just tour book angle where it's curated it tells you you know what this fountain is or whatever but then imagine if it was like crowdsourced and you could i don't know you know point it at a piece of street art that you see on your way somewhere and find out who's the street artist who did it where else can you see their work you know when yeah. was it put up yeah. what was there before that's cool. And then you can get the entire notion of like collections and guidebooks being built for something, an experience like that. And, and you know, you literally have instead of a book with that artist's work, you have that artist's work in context all over the world. It's a different, you sort of explode like the notion. Scavenger of, hunt or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really interesting. That, that one was really exciting to me. It's um, not quite an app, but I'm curious how you guys think about virtual reality in terms of travel because it's something we've thought a lot about. Does it replace travel? Does it enhance travel? Does it serve as sort of a precursor to, to traveling places? Is it all of those things? It's obviously still very early in, in this new age of virtual reality, but is it ultimately something to be excited about or worried about? So I've kind of been obsessed with it for the last year or so, and we've been trying to figure out ways to do it on our end, create our own VR, but I've always thought of it as complimentary. I think of it as like one of the greatest marketing tools for travel that there is because, you know, say I try a video where it takes me to the Great Barrier Reef. I've had the lucky opportunity to actually scuba and snorkel the Great Barrier Reef, and they're totally different, right? But (laughs) it's getting me outside of my head a little bit, and it's as good as, you know, a really great movie about that place. And I think it's just, it feels a little more tactile than watching something that's just on the big screen. And I'm really into it. Uh, what do I've, you guys think? I've, no, I, I mean, I think you see that there are two things that one is the marketing and the ability for you to do all kinds of mundane and exciting things. So I think the Great Barrier Reef, the base jumping, all of those things are going to be available and previewable in a way. And then I think also like your hotel suite, like which one do you want? Is the bed over there? Is the bed over there? Where's the window? What's the bathroom like? Those kinds of things are going to be enhanced by this and your ability to make a good judgment about how you're going to spend your money is going to be enhanced. But then I think even more exciting than that is that there are people who can't travel for one reason or another and who are disabled or differently abled or, or whatever. And I think that this has the potential to open up experiences to them in a way that is much more compelling than anything that has existed this you know up until this point yeah for me it like breaks down really into three categories it's the aspirational travel or the kind of out of bounds travel so like i tested out a a vr program called everest vr where you follow the route of an everest climb you know the different stages i'm never going to climb everest i've come to terms with that that's like a fun way to come even somewhat close to it they're ironing out some kinks but like you know, I was standing at the edge of a precipice and like my knees felt weak and I started sweating. Like it was, it was, it felt very real. 
And then there's kind of, like you said, the more educational people who might not have the economic means to travel or, or other means to travel and to be able to learn about a, another part of the world. And then the more, like you said, the more service oriented, you know, you can go down like the Vegas strip before you travel there and like plan out your trip or just get excited about it or, or whatever. But for me, the stuff that I'm most excited about is that is like the Everest. It's the one, the seven minutes of terror that they released of the descent of the Curiosity rover onto the surface of Mars that you can experience as if you're the rover. Like that's the stuff that gets me really excited from a travel perspective. What's great about it is that now with the Daydream and with some of the other players that are more economical, it doesn't even have to be particularly sophisticated to be valuable, right? Like, so I was testing the the Daydream last week and there was basically a street view collection for the Taj Mahal. Like, I've never been to the Taj Mahal. I hope to go one day. But we have all been through that experience where you go to some famous location or some well-known location, and the experience is very different, right? Because everybody takes these great pictures and you sort of see the pictures, but they don't give you a full sense of what it's like. And so the Taj Mahal is actually a much more complex sort of experience than I thought that it was. You think of this one building because that's the building everybody photographs. And once you get immersed in the 360 or the VR experience, you know, it becomes a much more complete thing. And Street View is not a sophisticated version of this. It's static images, right? And it's just sort of converted into the space. But yet it still made me know more than I knew before I put it on. And that's an $80, you know, sort of experience right there. Are you alone at the Taj Mahal or are there fake tourists? Everywhere? They're not fake tourists. They're real tourists because, you know, the way they take the pictures. That's what's weird about it is that you do see lots of people all around. One of the things that I discovered, duh, is that it's crowded at the Taj Mahal. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of people around. And, and, I've and been the, to the Taj Mahal. That's why I asked. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing is like when it's made from real footage, the way that we're getting to be able to make these experiences – it's not a cleaned up video game kind of experience, right? Like where they brush everybody out of the Taj Mahal. They're just taking footage around the Taj Mahal and whoever is there is there and they're in your they're in your VR experience. So meanwhile the Everest one is a cleaned up version. So they basically <laughs> mapped out like the entire route. So it's very accurate, but it is computer generated and my biggest complaint is you can't die. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't the stakes be so much higher if you're playing that Don't game you if you that? could fall off the edge and die? But if you die in VR, you die in real life. <laughs> Black Mirror. Yeah. <laughs> we, we didn't even talk about drones. Say, say drones. Drones. <laughs> drones. I mean, I think photography in general is changing. The expectations we have out of the photos we can take and, like, the way we capture memories and share them uh, or our travels and share them is changing. I know there are people really not into the idea of drones on holidays, and I think you should be respectful of where you are before you fly your drone around the Taj Mahal, for example. Um, but at least personally, like I'm very excited by what's happening in like digital photography from you know the days of the DSLR, and then being like, you know what, maybe I can leave my DSLR at home because my iPhone takes pretty damn good pictures, and now it's like. Maybe I can have something that's even better than my iPhone or something that I can plug into my iPhone that's better. And now it's like, maybe I can have like a robot that goes 100 feet in the air and takes like a panorama of this beautiful it environment. It fits in my purse, and right? Like, yeah, and like with the new DJI Mavic Pro, it fits in your backpack or your purse. Like, it's really, I think, changing how creative we can be when we travel too and like how we create images, how we share them. So like, yeah, take it with a grain of salt, you know, don't bring it everywhere. Don't ruin the serenity of a beautiful isolated beach with it. Don't knock over statues when you're trying over. to take a 360 selfie. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, 360 too, like to be able to 
sure, take a selfie, but you take it with a 360 camera, someone can interact with it and not just like look at your mug, you know? They can look around you and see where you were and really experience it. And see how awesome you are. Yeah. Those are my thoughts on it. Jason, parting words on Drones? Drones. Sorry. Uh, I was just thinking about the Taj Mahal. Uh, if I saw... <laughs> or drones or uh, like other travel yeah. gadgets that you think are changing things? Um, I love the portable charging systems. Oh, yeah. Uh, those are fun. But no, but, but back to drones. I mean, it's interesting. I guess institutionally we're very pro-drone. And, and the photo we use to open the package, I think, is is was an example of drone photography. And the angles are so exciting. And, and I think it's important for people to feel like they're taking photos from new angles, if that makes sense. So they can post them online and have a kind of a new way of looking at the world. And one of our kind of underlying theses for the package was that social media and, and photography has really opened up parts of the world that so many people may not have considered before. Uh, one of our editors here found the Hawaiian island she wanted to go to on Pinterest. Um, a bunch of us search Instagram for, you know, using various travel hashtags to find where we want to go in certain locations. And so as those places are more and more exposed, I, I like the idea that drones help you see them in new ways and, and sort of a kind of got to catch them all for photography. And if you have a little drone at the Taj Mahal, I'd probably roll my eyes at you, but I'd probably also be jealous, <laughs> yeah. jealous of the photo you got. You yeah, know? totally. And, and the democratization of kind of dramatic you know, differently angled kind of different perspective photography, I think is kind of interesting. That, that was one of the things that, you know, you played around with uh, Sebastian, the the Mavic Pro, and you took some damn good, like, you know, I mean, I get it. That's not like pro level, whatever drone photography, but it was pretty impressive yeah. with you just kind and of was, not knowing what you were doing. It had nothing you know? to do with me. Yeah, it was yeah. all the, the equipment. I mean, like, well, it's all the angles. It's all getting up above yeah. things, which we can't do. That's yeah. not something that we can normally do. We and depended on like the planet Earth team to do that. For <laughs> that's, us right. Yeah. that's right. That's <laughs> right. Well, I also love that places like Cuba have allowed drone video, right? Mm -hmm. Places that for a very long time you couldn't see different angles of, you know, they're like, okay, we're going to do a tourism video. It's We're going to use a drone. And it's actually one of the most spectacular scenes that you could get of Havana. You yeah, know, they right. go all over Havana. And we, we ran a fun video of a, a drone of the Shire in New Zealand. Yeah, like I love the, that. That's so cool. It's so fun. I mean, it's just, like you said, it's all about the angles. It's all about experiencing something familiar in a new way or unfamiliar in a kind of extravagant way. And drones do that. Yeah. So future of travel. Are we excited about the future of travel? Are we scared by the future of travel? I think both. After watching your video testing out the Tesla self-driving car, I'm pretty scared. We, we damn near hit a couple walls <laughs> in the self-driving car. Self-driving uh, car was slightly suicidal. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think I'm personally, I'm both, you know, like many things in life. I'm excited, but I'm also, you know, a little wary. Yeah. I try to back away from this and sort of see it like there were two things. One, people are traveling more. Travel has been democratized, which is a great thing. If you think about that Grand Hotel era, it was reserved. It was the province of people of great wealth, right? And now it is the province of everybody, mm -hmm. and that's a wonderful thing. But it also means that Reykjavik is Brooklyn North, you know, <laughs> or whatever, and that's kind of a drag. And you know, this is something we keep coming back again. And then I think the other thing is that people are going farther and farther away, 
that also feels true. And the farther and farther away is becoming more and more familiar. The Instagram piece that you guys did, Jason, where you, you rounded up all those faraway places that people have discovered on and popularized on Instagram, and now there's like this mad dash to get to those you know wacky out of the way places or Everest, right? Like the same. This is the theme of of the crack hour book and the movie and like blah blah blah. But like, there's both a wonderful thing in that that is available to people, and there's a there's a negative thing in that those places then become overrun, and that becomes a problem for everybody. And also, mystery disappears from the world, and you know that's kind of a bummer. Which I think related to that is like, yeah, we're going to be engaging with technology more than ever when we travel. We're going to have more little gadgets than ever in our carry-on. But I think that makes it all the more important to like unplug now and then for vacation. Because you're... Yeah, just be, so man. The message be, of our man. future travel package is unplug. <laughs> <laughs> unplug occasionally. I think it is important. And I think I'm going to continue to do so every once in a while. Oh. We lost Jason. Jason, the future, the future of, <laughs> of telephony is not, not, in FaceTime. not looking great. We should probably wrap <laughs> I guess. it up. All right, so that's going to wrap it up for us. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Thank you, Jason, Sebastian, and Laura, and for everybody listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes and SoundCloud. And visit us at cntraveler.com and at wired.com. Everything we've talked about is at cntraveler.com slash future dash of dash travel. That's really kind of a mouthful, but not too bad as web addresses go. We are also at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. Please tweet at us. Send us feedback. Review us on iTunes. Tell us what you're excited about or not so excited about with the future of travel. Um, We'd love to hear your stories. There is a chance your stories get put online because we do that uh, from time to time. And meanwhile, we've lost Jason on the the, the future of telephony not looking so great. Uh, We lost Jason. But Jason is accessible at at JK, which is J. K-E-H-E on Twitter. Sebastian, where, where can the folk find you? At Seb Modek. Laura. I'm at Laura underscore Redman and at Danon825 on Twitter. And I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy holidays. Peace.